This Janet Meffer Today archive broadcast is brought to you by the National Day of Prayer. The National Day of Prayer is Thursday, May 6th. Join millions of praying Americans who are united in prayer for our country. Connect from your mobile device or computer to the largest online prayer gathering ever. Just go to pray.team. That's pray.team. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Over the past year, we have seen quite dramatically what can happen when government officials try to trample religious liberty. We saw church after church going to court to argue that governors cannot declare churches to be non-essential during a pandemic, while at the same time allowing abortion clinics and liquor stores to stay open. Now, thankfully, the U.S. Supreme Court stepped in and stood with these churches in several important cases. But the whole situation is a reminder that we cannot take our religious liberty for granted these days, especially as more people in our nation, including those in government, have lost sight of the importance of the First Amendment and are becoming more hostile toward the idea of religion altogether. We're going to tackle these things today with former U.S. Solicitor General, Independent Counsel and Judge Ken Starr. He has argued 36 cases before the Supreme Court, served as president and chancellor at Baylor University and as dean of the Pepperdine School of Law. He is now of counsel to the Lanier Law Firm and is out with a great new book we'll be discussing. It's called Religious Liberty in Crisis. And Judge Starr, wonderful to have you here. Oh, it's so good to be with you, and thank you. Absolutely. You know, in many ways, as you point out in your book, the pandemic didn't throw religious liberty into crisis so much as it just highlighted what had already been a crisis. And I'm wondering how you think the state of religious liberty in America evolved into a crisis in the first place. It happened rather slowly because in the 1990s, which wasn't so long ago, we were in the glorious and golden age of religious liberty. Everyone was singing from the same sheet of music. But things started changing early in this century. Part of its secularization of the culture. Some of it, I think, was just religious wars, right? The Middle East, 9-11, scandals in the church, broadly defined. And so the confluence of of a number of uh, events came together to call people to say, maybe religious liberty isn't so good after all. And we saw this very powerfully in a case involving Hobby Lobby, 600 stores around the country, and Hobby Lobby, privately owned, could not in conscience, the owners, the Green family, could not in conscience provide abortifacients as part of a package of health care programs required by the Obama administration. And I think that was one of those catalytic events that people stood up and said, whoa, I either agree with the Green family and they should enjoy a conscientious objector, or I really disagree. So we've seen more of these points of conflict rather than the points of confluence, which we had in the last decade of the 20th century. Those were the good old days. Yes, they were. And I think you're right about the Hobby Lobby case. I was quite surprised, in fact, when that was handed down to see all of the chatter on Twitter about how outrageous it was that the Supreme Court would side with Hobby Lobby. It's as if the whole worldview was absolutely alien to a good deal of people in this country. And it reflected this broader concern, uh, and it brought it home to me, 
that we as a people, as a culture, happily not the law, not the Constitution, have moved away from the view that conscientious objectors should not simply be tolerated, they should be respected, they should be treated civilly, but they should be allowed to go their own way. Mm -hmm. A great example I talk about in the book is a case involving compulsory education. Wisconsin versus Yoder is the name of it, when the Supreme Court overwhelmingly upheld the ability of the Amish in Wisconsin to take their children out of school and for them to remain in the culture of the old order Amish, even though the state of Wisconsin was saying, no, they have to stay in school, compulsory education. It's not targeted as religion. It is simply a compulsory, universally applicable law here in the Badger State. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to protect religious conscience. And that's one of the great principles that I talk about in the book and say it is time for us to re-educate ourselves about these great principles, such as the autonomy, this was the pandemic, the autonomy of church and church-related institutions. Totally right. When you're talking about the importance of that principle of autonomy, this is the idea people will know that we can govern ourselves and specifically that churches can govern themselves. What do you make of the fact that people like the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, and others, but he was one of the main people in the spotlight, for so long was able to pick winners and losers at the expense of churches and got away with it for such a long time. That's what kind of sticks in my craw. How in the world was he able, with all these people watching, to not see more of an outcry from, and I know it's California, but still there are many, many people in California who don't agree with the far left out there. How did he get away with that for such a long time between, before the courts actually put a stop to what he was doing? Well, I think that perhaps to a fault, the good people of California, the people of faith, uh, were indulgent or submissive. Well, we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities and so forth. But at the same time, we are enjoined we're to obey God rather than man. Martin Luther King Jr., I must uh, disobey this law. I understand that consequences may flow if I disobey this unjust law, etc. So, but it took a while, I think, people to adjust. Well, this the pandemic. Is, is this a, a, a truly disastrous situation? Obviously, it was a very, very profoundly, in this, profoundly serious situation. But it took, I think, a while for the churches to get their footing, and then for some courageous folks to stand up and say, wait a second, there seems to be an oddity here. Take Nevada, another the neighboring state, where Caesar's Palace could operate at 50% capacity, but churches, no matter how large the auditorium, the sanctuary, the limit of 50 persons, and it just did not make any sense. Finally, the Supreme Court decided we're not going to defer to the scientists or certainly not to the politicians yes. <laughs> in, in the capital cities. And we're going to step in and really enforce the rights that are so precious, should be precious to every American. And that's what I hope this book will do. It will teach us about the foundation of our rights, which are God-given, but now 
it's up to us to protect, to understand our rights and to protect them. Well, absolutely. And when you're talking in the context of the pandemic about what could potentially trump religious liberty, uh, people need to go back and read the text of the First Amendment again, I think, in our own day. But there's this idea among some leftists that public health really is a more important principle than even religious liberty. How would you begin with that particular misunderstanding to correct it in the minds of those people who hold to that? Well, I would say that the government can, in fact, uh, provide for uh, uh, precautionary measures and so forth in order to protect uh, the public health. But they can't carry it to an extreme, and especially they can't then discriminate against religious institutions to allow, say, Walmart to occupy, to operate right at 40 percent capacity or 50 percent capacity and so forth. But then to say to uh, churches, no, you're going to operate under a different set of rules. So once again, I think and this is one of the great principles that I try to explain in this uh, book, which is all of 170 pages, it's easily accessible, is thou shall not discriminate against religious institutions, churches, church schools, and so forth. Fundamental principle, we need to understand that, and then we need to have the courage of our convictions to stand up and say, you know, I just don't think that's right, Governor, and to encourage pastors and church leaders to stand firm, as the Apostle Paul taught us. Yes. Well, absolutely. And and you get into so many great cases in your book, uh, kind of going through how the courts have handled the issue of religious liberty. One of the things that you mentioned is the Bladensburg Cross case. This was such a significant case. And that involved a, really a jettisoning of the Lemon Test, which was per, you know put forth in 1971, came out of this case called Lemon v. Kurtzman. People may respond to this. Uh, remember this, in fact. This established this three-pronged Lemon Test, which meant many people have pointed out, actually has been used to harm the cause of religious liberty and has done a lot of damage. And one of the things I want to get into when we come back from this break is whether or not we have seen the death of the lemon test to any extent. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back with Judge Ken Starr. Religious Liberty in Crisis is his book. Stay with us on Janet Mefford today. Today is the National Day of Prayer. Join millions of praying Americans who are united in prayer for our country. Connect from your mobile device or computer to the largest online prayer gathering ever. It's an incredible opportunity to experience the power of prayer as one nation under God. Be a part of this historic day, along with fellow Christians who are ready to make a difference by lifting up our nation in prayer. Free prayer resources are waiting for you right now. Join an online prayer room or create a private prayer room and invite family, friends, and neighbors to join you for the National Day of Prayer. Just go to pray.team. That's pray.team. There's absolutely no cost to participate. This is your call to prayer, and now's the time to answer the call. Our country needs your prayers more than ever. So join the largest online prayer gathering in history at the National Day of Prayer. We'll see you online at pray.team. That's pray.team. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new healthcare program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the healthcare program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a healthcare sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. We are so glad you're here and glad to be talking with Judge Ken Starr out with a great new book. It really is. It's called Religious Liberty in Crisis, Exercising Your Faith in an Age of Uncertainty. And I wanted to get into this a little bit with you, Judge Starr, because some of these cases that you reference, including this Peace Cross case or the Bladensburg Cross case, have uh, an overlap with this lemon test. And I know many Christians aren't necessarily familiar with all of the details of the law and the lemon test going back to 1971. But it was interesting how Judge Gorsuch actually called Lemon a misadventure that sought a grand unified theory of the Establishment Clause, but left us only a mess. Can you speak to that issue? I thought that was a great quote, but can you speak to that a little bit? And is the Lemon test dead now sure. or, or just on life support? What do you think about it all? You know, oh, I like the alternative of life support. It's not officially dead, but the Lemon test requires when you're facing a challenge under the Establishment Clause for the government to uh, to demonstrate well, we're doing this, but it has a primary purpose of not advancing religion or inhibiting religion. It has the primary effect, likewise, of not promoting religion, faith, and not uh, standing in the way and so forth. And then it doesn't involve an excessive entanglement uh, of government with the church or the uh, church activity. So that's the so-called lemon test. It was designed, actually, or it came out of, a very difficult issue, which is direct public aid to parochial schools. And that's a whole subject in and of itself. Even if it had merit, and I think it did not, the lemon test was then applied very broadly to a whole wide range of activity. And so when, and here was when the key conflict, the great battle occurred, Lemon versus Kurtzman meets the practice of legislative chaplains. <laughs> and the Supreme Court of the United States held nearly five to four that legislative chaplaincies, those that have existed in Congress since 1789, and that have exist in all of the states, are constitutional, notwithstanding the three-part lemon test. That was back in the 1980s that the court crossed that <laughs> That Rubicon had made a little bit of lemonade, so to speak, <laughs> but it really kind of set aside the, the, the case. Unfortunately, the decision is still in the books, and it was on that basis, Janet, as you know, that the lower court in Richmond and the Bladensburg Cross case said the cross has to go. One judge suggested that the arms of the cross could be cut off, Ugh. so it becomes a Washington Monument type of obelisk. Unthinkable. Ugh. The Supreme Court of the United States rejected that seven to two. 
seven to two. And so it's not a violation of the Establishment Clause, but to the contrary. And this is one of the great principles that I talk about in the book. It reflects and embodies our history and tradition. As William O. Douglas said many years ago, one of the most liberal justices ever said, he wrote this for the court. We are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. Think of the Declaration of Independence. We get to honor our culture. We get to honor our history. We get to honor our tradition. The Lemon v. Kurtzman test, off you go. We're just not going to apply that three-part test in the circumstances of a well-settled practice or an activity or place such as the Bladensburg Cross. Right. Well, that's so interesting. And I'm sure there'll be more cases to come that will touch on the same issue. But another thing that you mentioned, another case that you were involved in as Solicitor General was this case of Lee versus Wiseman, in which the Supreme Court ruled in the early 90s that the inclusion of clergy who offer prayers at public school ceremonies is a violation of the Establishment Clause. And you say that loss was bitter. But what are your reflections on that particular decision and its significance? Yeah, uh, I, no one likes to lose a, a case, and I did argue the case in favor of graduation prayer, which I thought was part of the history and traditions of the country. But a, a, a deeply divided Supreme Court said there is a coercive element about it. It's not formal official coercion, but there's a coercive element about it. That's one of the flaws, and I think all people of goodwill, regardless of their faith journey or lack thereof, would say yes. The government should not be coercing anyone in matters of faith and belief. But the second problem, which I frankly disagreed with, but I see the point, was that the uh, school there provided the visiting clergy person, who was a, a Jewish rabbi, with a guide from the National Council of Christians and Jews to make uh, the prayer, not to command the prayer to here's the prayer you've got to give, but just guidance so that the prayer would be non-divisive, inclusive. And the Supreme Court said the state should not be the government, should not be in the business of trying to guide the content of prayer. And I think, frankly, the court had a fair point on that. Would I have decided, I would have opted in favor of history and tradition as long as there's no real coercion. But uh, it, it was, and, and I use it in the book as an illustration, the power of the principle, thou government shall not coerce people in matters of faith, is so strong. So that's the silver lining to the cloud of my loss, which, again, you hate to lose cases as a lawyer, particularly when you believe in the rightness of the, the case, as I did uh, in the graduation prayer case. But there definitely is a silver lining to that cloud. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I wanted to ask you, too, what kind of ripple effects you think there might ultimately be for religious liberty, and especially for Christians, in light of both the Obergefell and the Bostock decisions? Because we had the Bostock decision uh, as the case that said the word sex and federal civil rights law also means now sexual orientation and gender identity. We have the House having passed the Equality Act, uh, which would eliminate religious exemptions and basically gut RIFRA. What do you think may be ahead here for Christians in particular, because we've seen these clashes of religious freedom versus so-called gay rights, doesn't seem in many cases like those two things are reconcilable. Well, they should be. We should, again, in terms of acts of conscience, be able in a pluralistic society to permit a Jack Phillips to serve everyone, 
But to still say I cannot bring my artistic skills to bear to create their a cake to uh, honor an activity and institution that I just can in conscience do. Uh, And historically, we have protected, as we were suggesting earlier, acts of conscience. We've we've said, okay, we understand that. Now, you have to serve everyone. You can't say, oh, well, I can't even serve uh, anyone who's not from a non-traditional family perspective and so forth. No, no, your business, you've got to serve everyone. But here's what the Equality Act would do. It would wipe out religious-based conscientious objections to these kinds of activities. So it's a very clear and present danger. It's much more of a danger than Supreme Court decisions, because in both Obergefell and Bostock, the justices in the majority said religious freedom is still very important. It's still very relevant. Churches shouldn't be required to perform same-sex weddings and so forth. And uh, there was also a very thoughtful I thought statement in Justice Gorsuch's opinion in the uh, Title VII case, in the Boston case, about protecting religious liberty. But the Equality Act changes all that, and so I think it is such a radical step in American law that it will, by God's grace, not pass the United States Senate, but as you well know, it passed the House of Representatives. Yeah, yeah, it sure did. It sure did. Now, it's interesting because we saw Arkansas, the legislature there recently passing this joint resolution that would throw to the voters the option of putting in place an amendment to the state constitution to protect religious liberty, which is wonderful. But you wonder what would happen if the Equality Act does become law. Would that negate it in the same way that maybe it's not exactly analogous, but in the same way that Obergefell nullified, it would seem, all the state constitutions that had amendments protecting marriage? Do you see any potential conflict there? Oh, I do. And it may ultimately come down to the constitutionality under the First Amendment, under those first principles, those great principles of the Equality Act, because in wiping out, as it effectively does, freedom of conscience, conscientious-based objections to particular law, it is bringing itself, as I see it, in direct conflict with the First Amendment, with a long tradition in American law articulated time and again by the Supreme Court and then embraced by the United States Congress overwhelmingly in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, which was signed into law by President Clinton. So this is all very recent pro-religious freedom activity and, and legislation and decisions of the Supreme Court that now would be torn asunder if, if, these forces in Congress have their way. But again, I think there will be a reckoning in the fullness of time because of the power of the First Amendment to preserve religious-based objections and exemptions. Well, I really hope so. How would you advise Christians in particular to stand at a time like this when there's so much uncertainty, as you mentioned in the subtitle of your book? What would you say about the, you know, the, the good things that may be ahead for us and encouraging things that we can look at, uh, particularly via some of these decisions that the Supreme Court has recently made? Yes, and I think the good news in the book, and it is a, a hoped-filled uh, book, but it's not a Pollyannaish book. It's based on reality. We have a very firm foundation. It's called the Constitution and the, of the United States and the, and the First Amendment. And we've had a Supreme Court that occasionally you'll disagree with a decision. But over these past many decades, I would date it back to 1981 when the Supreme Court decided in a case involving a public university 
that the public university, the University of Missouri, Kansas City, had erred constitutionally by forbidding a Christian group to meet on campus. That established this great principle that I talk about in the book of equality. So what should we do? We should inform ourselves. Don't just rely upon the great groups like Alliance Defending Freedom. God bless them. Don't just rely on great groups like First Liberty of Dallas, the Beckett Fund, these great friends of freedom. Let's inform ourselves as citizens to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us as citizens who believe in freedom, including freedom of conscience, so we can be winsome and persuasive in now the battlefield, which is the idea of religious liberty is losing its place in the pantheon of values. We need to restore that, and we can be a part of the restoration movement. Excellent. Thank you so much, Judge Ken Starr, Religious Liberty in Crisis. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today archive broadcast is brought to you by the National Day of Prayer. The National Day of Prayer is Thursday, May 6th. Join millions of praying Americans who are united in prayer for our country. Connect from your mobile device or computer to the largest online prayer gathering ever. Just go to pray.team. That's pray.team. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, this is really great what is going on with lawmakers in Arkansas who recently moved to increase protections for religious liberty, potentially in the state constitution. The state legislature has passed State Joint Resolution 14, which is the Arkansas Democrat Gazette states, proposes adding an amendment to the Arkansas Constitution that prohibits the government from burdening a person's freedom of religion unless the government can demonstrate that it furthers a compelling government interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. The ACLU, of course, not very happy. Some others not very happy, but I think this is a wonderful step forward, and they are pretty confident there in the state of Arkansas that voters will put into place this amendment. We're going to talk about it more now with Lathan Watts, Director of Public Affairs for First Liberty Institute. He's just written about this over at the Daily Signal. Lathan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You bet. Well, tell us about this new resolution. I know there are many states, especially in the South, that have done wonderful things concerning the protections of religious liberty. Tell us a little bit about this particular resolution and how it came about. What's going on there in Arkansas? Right. So the, uh, the state legislature uh, passed the bill um, pretty close to the end of the session, which uh, will put the matter to the voters of Arkansas at the next uh, general election ballot. So in, uh, I guess that would be next fall. So in, in 2022, it will be on the general election ballot. And it basically takes uh, the language from the, from the statute in Arkansas, which is their state version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and incorporates it into the Constitution of Arkansas. And the reason it's important is that you and your listeners can probably know if a, if a legislature can pass something, then a legislature can revoke something. Yeah. Um, by placing it in the Constitution, it sets the bar a little bit higher. So you have to, if the, if the voters of Arkansas next year approve this, then the only way to repeal it would be, in, uh, again, on another general election ballot, you'd have to persuade a majority of the voters in a general election to get rid of it. And it's important because as we see some of the things going on with Supreme Court cases and even with uh, bills that have been passed in the U.S. House, 
like the Equality Act, states have a responsibility to do what they can to protect, uh, you know, these these most cherished liberties of their people, and and they have the right to do so. Yes, uh, yes. The, the U.S. Constitution is uh, is a floor, not a ceiling. Uh, in other words, states can enact greater protections for their citizens than the U.S. Constitution. They just can't do less than. Right. And so I think uh, the the people of Arkansas will understand um, what's at stake there, and I I expect they will pass it um, when uh, when they get a chance to vote on it. And I, I think it's um, good for the people of Arkansas. Yeah, it and sure I'm, is. Yeah. I'm a native Arkansan, so I'm glad to see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have good folks there in Arkansas. That's awesome to hear. And here's what's very interesting about this particular piece of legislation. And I know there are people making noises about it because they have pointed out, in fact, one of the representatives from Arkansas, uh, actually from Fayetteville, a Democrat, said he was concerned that the current law there states that a government shall not substantially burden a p- person's exercise of religion, but the proposed Amendment takes out substantial. So it's basically saying you can't burden religious liberty. Why the change and why are people so up in arms about it? Well, I mean, really, yeah, I think the ACLU called it one of the more dangerous things in the country. And anytime the ACLU <laughs> is up in arms about something, it's typically a good idea. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the, the difference between sort of the that language, you know, the, removing the, the word substantial, the, the, the substantial burden uh, to religious liberty, that language comes from, uh, it's in the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it used to be the the standard of scrutiny that the Supreme Court approached uh, government action that impacted religious liberty. That yeah. The government had to show a compelling interest, and they had to do so in a way that did not substantially burden. Well, once you get into uh, a term like substantial, you're in the eye of the beholder. Yep. Um, you know, what is substantial to you, and, and if you're a judge, may be different than what is substantial to another judge. And so the clearer the language, typically the less wiggle room there is uh, for courts. And I think this is actually, um, you know, an improvement. And, you know, the the reason that we had the, the, the federal version of RIFRA was because of a Supreme Court case um, that, on Employment Division versus Smith, that really lowered the bar of scrutiny uh, in the court's eyes on action that that impacts religious freedom. And so Congress, back in 93, passed the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and that passed almost unanimously. It was carried in the House by then-Congressman Chuck Schumer. It was carried in the Senate by Ted Kennedy. Uh, (laughs) I think it only got two votes against it in the Senate. It was unanimous in the House. It was signed into law by Bill Clinton. And at the time, the ACLU supported the Religious Freedom (laughs) Restoration Act. I know. Yeah, well, you know, those were different times. We have a new Schumer. We have new people who used to be like that back in the day. And now they see it as extreme discrimination and whatnot. But it's funny when you talk about the ACLU, because the ACLU makes a point, which I think is ridiculous. But they're trying to say that by doing this, putting this kind of language in the amendment, this would open up the opportunity for people people to challenge and exempt themselves from virtually any state law. I mean, is that not an extreme reach? Who in the world is going to sue over every state law they don't like on the basis of religion? I I mean, I just don't see that happening. Yeah, it's nonsense. What it does is if if you it basically gives a person of faith who is put in in a situation by a state law or by the government coming after them for something, um, it gives them a defense. It gives them, uh, you know, a chance to say, 
it, it doesn't guarantee they win every time, but it gives them a legal defense to say this this law or this government action is creating a burden to my free exercise of religion. And you know, that is protected by the U.S. Constitution, federal RIFRA, state RIFRA, and now if this passes in Arkansas, you know, a state constitution amendment as well. So it gives them uh, a viable option to defend themselves. It doesn't guarantee a certain outcome. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, to, to claim that it's just going to sort of create, you know, this army of so-called like, sovereign citizens who just, you know, get to pick and choose what laws they obey is, you know, typical hyperbolic nonsense that <laughs> we've all become accustomed to from <laughs> certain groups. Yes, indeed. What you, know, had mentioned, you had mentioned the Equality Act would essentially undo the religious liberty protections that we have had in RIFRA, and a lot of Christians are very concerned about that. Um, what happens if the Equality Act becomes law and you still have this amendment in the Arkansas Constitution, I, I would imagine it would head to court, but what would happen? We do have a First Amendment, uh, but we might have a federal law that runs afoul of it, and, and a lot of people are worried. What, what happens if there's a need for that kind of a showdown? Yeah, and it, I mean, this can get a little bit complicated, but there's, a, there's another thing to keep in mind here, too, and it's, it's actually related to one of our clients at First Liberty, uh, we represent Coach Kennedy up yes. in uh, yes. Washington, you know, the football coach that's yep. fired for taking a knee in silent prayer. And his case is seen by many as uh, potentially a, a vehicle for the Supreme Court to overturn the uh, the Employment Division versus Smith case, which is what prompted Congress to pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Hmm. So in, Employment v. Smith is where the court unexplicably lowered the bar of of scrutiny towards government action when it comes to free exercise. So potentially what you, what you could have is if the court takes coach Kennedy's case and they, and they take that action and they sort of restore the strict scrutiny standard uh, of review, then when a, when a challenge to the equality act, which will inevitably happen if it's passed and signed into law, then the equality act would have to show how it meets that highest, uh, uh, can uh, the, the highest level of scrutiny, and it won't. Uh, and so I, I really think if it does pass, and it doesn't look like it has any chance in the Senate, but if it if something were to change and it did, then there there will be uh, there will there will be instant litigation, I'm sure. Uh, and depending on what the court does, again, you know, with Coach Kennedy's case, it may be facing the highest level of scrutiny by the Supreme Court, which I don't think it could it could pass uh, that test. So it's, I understand it's, uh, you know, can look uh, like dark clouds on the horizon sometimes, but I think there are silver linings. And, and one of them may be the fact that states are sort of re-embracing uh, federalism yes. and, the and the Ninth Amendment. Good point. Yeah, I got to run, but thank you so much, Lathan Watch. You can read his piece over at the Daily Signal from First Liberty Institute. Thanks a lot, Lathan. Great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. You take care. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Today is the National Day of Prayer. Join millions of praying Americans who are united in prayer for our country. Connect from your mobile device or computer to the largest online prayer gathering ever. It's an incredible opportunity to experience the power of prayer as one nation under God. Be a part of this historic day, along with fellow Christians who are ready to make a difference by lifting up our nation in prayer. 
free prayer resources are waiting for you right now. Join an online prayer room or create a private prayer room and invite family, friends, and neighbors to join you for the National Day of Prayer. Just go to pray.team. That's pray.team. There's absolutely no cost to participate. This is your call to prayer, and now's the time to answer the call. Our country needs your prayers more than ever. So join the largest online prayer gathering in history at the National Day of Prayer. We'll see you online at pray.team. That's pray.team. The Ministry of Preborn is making Mother's Day possible for new moms and their babies all over the country. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Would you join with Preborn to help make Mother's Day possible for more new moms? When an abortion-minded woman meets her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times she'll choose life. I came seeking termination, but once I got here and I took an ultrasound, I was overjoyed when I found out that I was having three baby boys. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies from abortion. And this month, through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, helping to save 10 babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. And as a thank you, you'll receive a special Mother's Day bookmark. Call now, 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. The 70th annual National Day of Prayer today. And depending on when you're listening to me, you may have already participated in the National Day of Prayer. Lots going on today all across the country. And every year I say this, but every year it's true. We have never needed the Lord more than we need Him today. Never. We are facing, as you know, unprecedented threats to our religious liberty and to our freedom in general as Americans. We have all watched this erosion take place, and it's just been on steroids over the last 12, 13 months. As everybody knows, I don't have to recount all of these things. It's interesting. This year's theme of the National Day of Prayer is Lord, pour out your love, life, and liberty. Love, life, and liberty. And Kathy Branzell from the National Day of Prayer has said, it's our prayer today and throughout 2021 that the Spirit of the Lord would pour out and pour through us across America. We pray to see the Lord fill our lives, families, churches, workplace, education, military, government, arts, entertainment, and media with biblical, not cultural, not worldly, but Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled love, life, and liberty as designed and defined by our Creator and Savior. And I was thinking about how interesting it is when we go to the Lord and we pray for our country. I don't know if you ever feel this way, but sometimes I just feel overwhelmed. This is what's so wonderful when you think about how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. More and more of my prayers are are like that. Lord, I don't know what to pray for, but help. And the wonderful thing about going to the Lord is that he knows exactly what we are petitioning him for before we ever get the words out. And sometimes if we can't even utter those words, he knows exactly what we are petitioning him for. And I go back to Daniel's wonderful prayer in Daniel 9. And if you read that prayer, verses 3 through 19, it really, I think, is an excellent blueprint for praying for our nation. And it it really is something to keep in mind today if you're going on your knees before God to pray for America and pray for all of the categories that I just listed. We feel so helpless sometimes. And what is so simple And it strikes me again and again as so simple is we don't have to utter these 
flowery, super well-worded prayers with lots of long words and lots of foo-foo to the whole thing. We just need to pour out our hearts before God. And sometimes that's just very simple, but it begins, I think, in such a good way with Daniel, where he says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I pray to the Lord, my God, and confessed and said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So there is Daniel praising the Lord, which is always the first order of business is to give God praise and thanks for his glory, for his holiness, for his kindness, for his mercy to us in Jesus Christ, but then goes on to confess his own sins personally and moves beyond that to confessing the sins of his people. And of course, Israel is not an exact analogy for where we are today in the New Testament time period, but the principles are the same. I often think to myself, how do I repent for the nation? I'm not in a position to repent for the nation. I can only repent for myself, but isn't that where we all have to begin? Lord, turn my heart more fully towards you. Lord, make me more obedient towards you. Make yourself known to me in a deeper way. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me courage to stand in this hour that I would obey you despite what our government might do to us. Oh Lord, let the freedom that we have as Americans continue. Let us be free to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we have learned over the last year what it means to have our liberties threatened when churches are shut down by the government. Who ever thought in the United States of America that we would ever be in a position where our churches would be shut down? And yet it happened. And there were churches, as we've been discussing, who have had to go to all the way to the Supreme Court in order to get liberties back. But the fact that they ever had to go at all is extremely chilling. Don't forget that God's hand is in it all, folks. Don't forget. When we have turned our backs on the Lord and we begin to see how the lack of his presence is affecting us, that's to serve as a wake-up call that we might return. And we can learn so much from all of the errors of ancient Israel, all of the times that the Lord had blessed Israel tremendously, and then they turned away from him. It happened again and again and again, and then they would go and they'd worship the idols of Baal, and oh, wait a minute, oh, you know, we forgot the Lord, and then he punishes them, and then he, they turn in repentance. It's a consistent cycle because of the sin of people. We have a tendency to backslide. We have a tendency to fall away. We have a tendency not to appreciate the blessings that God has given to us. And what he's calling us to do today and on every single day of the year is to be repentant and to say, Lord, I know I have fallen from what I should be as a Christian. I know that I have not loved you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And please restore to me the joy of your salvation. At any rate, if you go through that particular passage, it's great. 
really great to go through. And I appreciate what this website, jewishroots.net, has as a commentary, a review of Daniel's prayer. Uh, They point out Darius the Mede was appointed king over Babylon in 539 BC. And in the first year of his reign, Daniel, who is now an old man, spending most of his life as a Babylonian captive, was reading the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah and realized Israel's 70-year captivity was soon to end. This is in Daniel chapter 9. So he humbled himself in sackcloth and ashes and began that season of prayer and fasting of unspecified duration. Praising God is great and awesome. Praising God for keeping his covenant with and extending mercy to all who love and obey him. Recognizing the Lord is transcendent and righteous and just in his dealings with unfaithful Israel. Acknowledging and this is important, God's justification in punishing Israel for its sin. Boy, we don't want to talk about that. But isn't that true? Lord, what we're suffering as a nation, we deserve it. We not only deserve it, we deserve worse. How in the world can you look at a nation that has been so blessed by God going all the way back to the beginnings when the Mayflower landed here and Christians were trying to find a place where they could freely worship the Lord and here the Lord opened up this land to them and we inherited these incredible principles through the founding documents and we've had the blessings of liberty all of our lives and yet we kill millions of children in the womb. We have created through our Supreme Court an alternative so-called version of marriage, which is no marriage at all. It is an abomination before God. And that's what the Bible says. How in the world can we look at the moral sewer in which we're swimming every single day on the internet, on TV, in society, even when you're out and about the way people talk, there's such filthy ways of talking and there's so much sexual immorality and it's just, it wears on you. And now we add to all of this, the rioting and the looting and the accusations of systemic racism, which are ridiculous. It's not a country that is moving toward the Lord. It's a country that has fallen from the Lord. And I go back to Romans 1 and I think about when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, this is what happens. But, you know, I also think about the fact that as an old Puritan once said, Christians should be at their best when times are at their worst. And anything that the Lord will do, I believe, in the United States to turn it around, if that is his will, will begin, I believe, in the hearts of his people. Why wouldn't it begin in the hearts of his people? So today, if you are participating in the National Day of Prayer, whether that's in an official event or if you're just participating at home in some way, praying with your spouse or your husband or your wife or your kids, get on your knees today. Get on your knees today. You don't always need a big event necessarily to go to the Lord. This is a great opportunity to do that because the fellowship of the saints can be such a powerful thing and I would encourage you to participate. But if you're not able to, just go before God in your prayer closet, go before God on your knees next to your bed or in your car or wherever you happen to be and repent of your own sin. Where, where have I fallen short, O oh Lord? I'm gonna do that too. And let's begin there and let's praise him as the great and awesome God whose wrath is understandable but also plead to the Lord for his mercy because above all, he is love and he is mercy and he delights when people come to him and turn to him in repentance and sorrow for their sin. That's when the light breaks through and people can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. He justified us before a holy God by being raised from the dead and that is the best news this world has ever heard. So let's be at our best as Christians even if times look like they're at their worst. 
God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us. We've got to leave it there, but we'll see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today.